So the waiting time was over. The apostles, as, as well as others, had given themselves to prayer, you'll remember. They were in one accord in prayer. We see that in Acts chapter 1, verse 14. The apostles were there. So were the women. So were Jesus' brothers. So was Mary, the mother of Jesus. In total, there was about 120 people. And they are waiting. And during that waiting time, they are giving themselves to prayer. And also, we saw a necessity that had to be dealt with. The 12 had become 11. And the 11 needed to be made the 12 again. Judas had vacated his office due to apostasy and subsequent suicide. And God had ordained that that office was to be filled before the day of Pentecost had come. And be sure, there was purpose in the waiting. And part of that purpose included waiting till the specifically appointed time on God's calendar for the Holy Spirit to be given on the day of Pentecost. More about that in a moment. I told you last week that I would fill in some of the blanks concerning the two men who were put forward as options for the 12th spot among the the 12. You might remember that uh, they put forward two men. Acts chapter 1, verse 23, second half of it, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias. Now we do not know the details of uh, of these men and their lives. But those around them did. And doubtless, these men were faithful men. And they were put forward, and doubtless, those who put them forward, their peers, thought highly of them. But only one of them could serve in that twelfth spot. Two of them would have been too many. And neither of them would have been one too little. The Lord wanted to have twelve apostles before the day of Pentecost was to come. Each of them had been around since the days of Jesus' baptism by John in the Jordan. Perhaps they were among the 70 or 72, some early church writings that suggest such, but each was qualified to be the 12th apostle. And you'll remember that they sought the will of the Lord, those gathered in the apostles. And I think that's a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I went through those reasons last week. Jesus had selected the first 12 and they appealed to the Lord. And that identification was recently used for Jesus in that immediate context. They sought him in prayer, to see who he would choose to be the twelfth apostle to fill Judas's vacancy. Subsequently, lots were cast, and the lot fell upon Matthias. Now, a few words about Matthias. As is the case with some of the other apostles, as we've seen, we don't know much about him. But I want you to think about him in the opening chapters of Acts, when you see references to the apostles. Or in Acts chapter 6, for instance, the twelve So when you see the apostles referenced, you're thinking of men like him, or the little-known apostles, yet alone the well-known ones. But we don't know much about this man. This is the last reference to him by name in the New Testament. There are different traditions um, as to how he died. Um, Some say that he was martyred, stoned in Jerusalem, and subsequently beheaded. That's one possibility. Some contend that he preached the gospel in different places, until ultimately making his way to Ethiopia, where he preached the gospel there and was subsequently martyred. Some say that he was crucified. Others that he died quietly in Jerusalem, which I think is the least likely of all of the options. But the Lord knows. And what about Joseph? Called Justice and Barsabbas. Well, we're not told that he went away sad and sulking because he wasn't chosen to be among the twelve. 
Right? Now, some people can think, like, what happened to him after he was let down? He came so close to being part of the 12. You know what probably happened? He just continued to be faithful. All the implications are that he continued to just serve the Lord faithfully. There's some records in church history. Um, one, for instance, of, a, of an oral tradition that was passed down that he, during the course of his ministry, had drank poison but was unharmed. There's also... Uh, some possibility that he was imprisoned by Nero, but then was subsequently released. But again, as is the case with some of the apostles, and Joseph not being one of them, but nonetheless, the whole pattern holds true, we don't know for sure the details of his life or death. But I do want to say this, and I think this has application for all of us. Drawing from many scriptures in the New Testament, the Lord knows those who are His. He knows all the hairs on our heads, To draw from a reference in the Old Testament, He knows the tears that we cry. He knows the paths that we wander. He knows the glasses of water that we give in Jesus' name. He sees in secret the praying, the fasting, and the giving of His disciples. He is well aware of what is done to the least of these, His brethren, in His name. And to use language from Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10, God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love which you have shown towards His name in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. So history may not well know what Matthias and what Joseph did, but God knows. And history may not know what you have done and continue to do for Jesus' name, That's okay, because God knows. God knows. So there were purposes fulfilled in the waiting. But perhaps, and I think, the greatest reason for the waiting is found in the arrival of the appointed time. The day of Pentecost. This didn't just happen, you know, by way of happenstance. Like, I guess on, you know, the day of Pentecost, that will be the day that I will send the Holy Spirit This was the day that God had specifically purposed for the Holy Spirit to be poured out on that Jewish feast day. And here now we arrive to that long-awaited event. We begin in Acts chapter 2, verse 1, where we read, When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord, or as earlier manuscripts say, they were all together in one place. Now, Pentecost comes from that Greek word that means 50th. Pentecost was one of the great Jewish feasts. Depends how you number them. One of the seven great Jewish feasts, though some would say, when you look at Luke 22, verse 1, for instance, that Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread went together. We'll come to that more in a moment. So, Pentecost. This took place 50 days after the Sabbath, before the Feast of first fruits, And if you don't follow what this means right now, and you're like, I don't know much about Old Testament Israel's calendar, you will. You will know more shortly. So it happened 50 days after the Sabbath, before the Feast of first fruits. It was also known as the Feast of Weeks, since it took place seven weeks after the Feast of first fruits. It was known as the Feast of Harvest, Feast of the Grain Harvest, where Israelites would bring specific offerings to the Lord, thanking Him for the harvest that He had provided thus far, likely anticipating further harvesting to happen as the year continued. Some have said that the giving of the law happened at that time, corresponding to Pentecost. 
Pentecost was one of the three great Jewish feasts where Israelite males were commanded to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Interestingly, in Exodus 34, you see that God told the children of Israel that when they came into the land, he would deal with their enemies, and that as these men traveled from where they were to Jerusalem, he would make sure that no one coveted their land. It was, as it were, a kind of promise of providential protection as these people traveled from where they were, at least for their homeland. Pentecost was a day of the year when Jerusalem thus would be filled with Jews from all different geographic locations. This was a specific circumstance that accompanied the day of Pentecost, like other feasts, and maybe Pentecost more so than others. So imagine Jerusalem teeming with Jewish men. Look ahead in Acts chapter 2, verse 5. Luke tells us, And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men, from every nation under heaven. So get that scene in your eyes. Jerusalem is teeming. The streets are packed with people, with Jewish men coming from all different places to keep the feast of Pentecost. Oh, the perfect timing of God. He is never late. Behind His timing is infinite wisdom. How appropriate that the Holy Spirit would be poured out on a day when Jerusalem was teeming with people for the feast day of Pentecost. So the circumstances of Pentecost was in all likelihood a reason for its selection as the day in which the Holy Spirit would be poured out. But I think it goes well beyond just the circumstances to the symbolism of Pentecost. I think it's important for New Testament Christians to understand that God had arranged, I would argue, the Jewish feast calendar to be a kind of prophetic calendar that symbolized, pointed to, and subsequently to some degree laid out the redemptive historical work of the Messiah. Amazing. If you look at these first four feasts, which we are going to do briefly, you're going to see the redemptive historical work of the Messiah laid out, well leading right up into Pentecost. So Pentecost was the fourth uh, Jewish feast. And again, some may number it differently, calling it the third Jewish feast because of the way in which Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were tied together. You see that in a place like Luke 22, verse 1. But when you look at Leviticus 23, where you see the seven feasts laid out, there's a specific day appropriated for Passover. And then the next day begins the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Well, let's walk through this, and I think we'll all have more of an understanding of these precious feasts. So the first feast in the Old Testament Jewish calendar was the Feast of Passover. You'll remember that the Passover was instituted in Exodus chapter 12. God had sent nine plagues upon Egypt. And part of what was happening there is that God was making His power known as He levied plagues upon Egypt. And to some degree, they loosened the grip of Pharaoh upon the Israelite people. But then Pharaoh's grip tightened once again. So there would be a tenth plague, a final plague. God would send a tenth plague. And that tenth plague would be that every firstborn in the households of Egypt would die. It was a judgment that he was sending upon the land. But those who were in Israelite households could be spared if they followed the Lord's instruction. And the Lord's instruction was to take a lamb. And there were specific instructions for that lamb. They were to take that lamb, sacrifice that lamb, and they were to put that lamb's blood upon the doorposts of the house. 
the sides and the top of the doorway. This first feast, Passover, pointed to the Lord Jesus Christ giving Himself on the cross for our sins. Think about this. Every Passover lamb slaughtered during every Passover from that time up until the day in which Jesus was crucified pointed to the Passover lamb par excellence, the Lord Jesus Christ. As the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed. Some manuscripts include the words, for us. Christ, our Passover. You look at John chapter 18, verse 28, and you see that Jesus was crucified on Passover. He died for the sins of His people on that day as the Passover lamb par excellence. So that the judgment of God might pass over all who believe in Him alone for the forgiveness of sins, seeing as the punishment fell upon Him. Okay, so that's the first Jewish feast. Points to the Lord Jesus Christ. The next day, the day after Passover, Passover, according to the Jewish calendar, was on the 14th day of the first month, Nisan. The very next day was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. There would be preparations that the Jewish people would be taking on the night of Passover. But according to Leviticus 23, it was on the next day, the 15th of Nisan, to the 21st of Nisan, that the Feast of Unleavened Bread would be kept and celebrated. And you go through the Scriptures, and you can clearly see, not in every instance, but predominantly, leaven was a metaphoric representation of sin. The yeast that would make its way through the dough, that could puff up the dough, possibly representing pride and how it puffs one up. But it's not limited to just pride. It's representative of sin in a general way. And isn't it fitting that our Savior was unleavened? He was without sin. But think about this even further. The Feast of Unleavened Bread happened during Jesus' burial. He was buried on the day that He was crucified. But we know that he was also in the tomb on the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Think about this. The grave had never seen an unleavened man before, if you will. This was the first time an unleavened man showed up in the grave. So it should be no surprise to use language that's going to be used a little bit later on in the book of Acts. Death couldn't hold him. Death was, if you will, kind of like the great fish that swallowed Jonah. Couldn't hold him. It had to let him go. The Lord Jesus Christ being unleavened wouldn't see decay in the grave. In fulfillment of the prophetic language that David used, Peter's going to quote this a little bit later on in Acts chapter 2, that God would not allow His Holy One to see corruption. He had been unleavened in life. He was without sin. And He would be, if you will, unleavened even in the grave as His body would not see corruption. So there he is, during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, buried, but would not see corruption in the grave, would have to let him go. I do want to say this, because I think this is important. When we look in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we do see how the Apostle Paul uses this kind of language to help Christians be reminded to live holy lives and to help remind Christians that the church ought to be holy. Not just positionally holy, but practically holy. We are positionally holy in Christ, but we ought to live Practically holy. To read from 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6-8, through 8, you'll hear the following, and I'll explain a little bit of the context. 
Your glorying, Paul told the Corinthians, is not good. Likely a reference to the fact that they had a man who was living in such sexual immorality, the likes of which wasn't even named among the Gentiles, and they were tolerating it. No church discipline was being exercised. You have a man living in unrepentant sin, and they're likely glorying in that. Look how tolerant we are. And so Paul tells them, your glorying is not good. He tells them in verse 6, Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Well, this is a reference here to how keeping this unrepentant man within the Christian covenant community, it's not good for the community. He's using that imagery of leaven. You put a little bit in, it's going to spread throughout the entire lump. He tells the church then, Therefore, purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. A little bit of what he's saying there is, be who you are. You're the new covenant people of God. You've been made holy by the blood of Christ. You are forgiven of your sins. You are now positionally unleavened. Be who you are. Live in an unleavened way. But he's applying this most immediately to the church corporately. Say, as a church, you need to handle this. This just can't go on and not be addressed. Now we'll see a little bit of language that I think has application for us personally. He says, therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice or wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And part of the way we live out the Feast of Unleavened Bread as New Testament Christians is we seek to remove evil influences from our lives. Like, what evil influences do I have to get rid of? What, you know, things am I watching, things that I'm doing, things that I'm thinking, the ways I'm behaving, what has to go? We think this way as New Testament Christians to honor the Feast of Unleavened Bread because we're called to live unleavened lives because we are unleavened positionally. We are righteous in Jesus Christ. But the application here is also clear. We are to remove unrepentant evil influences from the church corporately. Just so you could hear this, it's important for the church to hear, and we'll get right back to the feasts. Paul would go on in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 9, and he would say this, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. Quick note here, Paul is not saying you could have fellowship with the world. That's not enmity with God. That's not what he's saying. He's basically saying you don't have to become a recluse. Because you're going to interact with these kinds of people and you need to be salt and you need to be light. So I'm not telling you to go into a monastery. I'm not telling you to be a recluse. He's also not telling them to have fellowship with the world, which is enmity against God. What fellowship does Christ have with Baal and so on? He says that later in 2 Corinthians. But now he goes on and he says this. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. I reference all of that because that's part of the way Paul is applying that reality that we are unleavened, making reference to the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So it's important in a local church that there be accountability for unrepentant sin. Not with harshness or coldness or anger or merciless um, exhortations or anything like that, but with sober, compassionate confronting of unrepentant sin 
for the glory of God and for the good of His church. All right, back to the feasts. Then came the third feast. So first feast was what? Passover. Second feast, kind of tied with Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Then comes the third feast in Leviticus 23. This is the Feast of First Fruits. Guess what day of the week that fell on? Wait for it. Sunday. The first day of the week. More about that in a moment. The first day of the week following the Passover. So what would happen during the Feast of First Fruits is that the people of Israel, they would give thanks to God for the first fruits of the harvest, and they would anticipate a greater harvest to come. So the people would bring a sheaf, and you're like, I don't know what a sheaf is. Is that like a sheep, like kind of like, you know, um, language for a, a certain kind of sheep? No, a sheaf was a bundle of grain stalks tied together. So they would take from the first fruits of their harvest a bundle of grain stalks tied together, and they would offer it to the Lord, and they would do this on the first day after the Sabbath that followed Passover, which would be the first day of the week, which would be Sunday. So if you follow the timeline of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus died on Passover as the Passover lamb. Jesus was buried and in the grave during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And Jesus rose from the grave on the Feast of First Fruits. Which is why the Apostle Paul, in language, using language in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20, says, But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So what would happen during the feast day is that the people would bring this offering to the priest, the bundled grain stalks, and then the priest would lift it before the Lord, wave the sheaf before Yahweh. And they would do it on the day after the Sabbath. But it was an anticipation of a greater harvest to come. And what Paul is basically saying is Christ is the first fruits from the dead. Raised from the dead on the Feast of First Fruits, as though to say all of the Feast of First Fruits leading up to Resurrection Sunday pointed to his resurrection and him being the first fruits of a greater harvest of those who would be resurrected from the dead. Thanks be to God. Paul would later go on in 1 Corinthians 15.23. He would say to believers, but each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterwards those who are Christ's at His coming. As a little bit of an aside, I've often wondered in my mind when you read that interesting occasion in Matthew 27, when we know that the graves were opened, and then some holy men would come out of their graves after Jesus' resurrection. Is that a kind of visible token of the high priest, as it were, saying there's a visible token of the greater harvest to come of those who are born again and those who would receive glorified bodies and so on. But we know that Jesus is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. That brings us to the next great Jewish feast, Pentecost. Pentecost. Again, to remind you, Pentecost 50, it's 50 because it happened 50 days after the Sabbath, before the Feast of First Fruits. 50 days. It happened seven weeks, 49 days after the Feast of First Fruits. You look through the scriptures, this feast was also known as the Feast of Weeks, again, since it took place seven weeks after the Feast of First Fruits, or the Feast of Grain Harvest. 
To use language from Exodus 34, verse 22, the Lord had told His people, And you shall observe the feast of weeks of the first fruits of wheat harvest and the feast of ingathering at the year's end. Okay, now what would happen during this feast? There were other sacrifices that were to be brought. It wasn't just what I'm about to tell you was to be brought. It was, there were other things. But interestingly enough, among the other things that were offered, the people would take two loaves of bread baked with leaven. Like leaven? I thought leaven's bad. Well, no, leaven is leaven, but leaven is often metaphorically bad. But in this case, they were to take bread and they were to offer that bread with leaven. And then these two loaves of bread, both with leaven, were to be waved before the Lord. And I think the symbolism is as follows, to say the least. Just as Israel celebrated the harvest during the Feast of Pentecost, likely anticipating further harvesting to continue, so the day of Pentecost was a spiritual harvest with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. 3,000 people would be saved and they were the first fruits of a greater harvest than anyone could number. And we'll get into the, uh, the likes of who were gathered there, but we know even on that day, even on the day of Pentecost, when you look at those who were gathered, we're told that it's not only a listing of, of nations, as it were, people representative of nations, but also there were both Jews and proselytes who were present in Jerusalem. Secondly, I like what Spurgeon said about the leavened loaves. He put it this way. Were there not two loaves? Not only shall Israel be saved, but the multitude of Gentiles shall be turned unto the Lord Jesus Christ. I think you could even extend it further when you think of these loaves. Possibly, possibly, representing Israel and the Gentiles, which would be made one loaf ultimately. They'd be made one new man in Christ Jesus. But the picture of these loaves being leavened speaks to them being offered to the Lord, yet still being sinful. Right? Because you are holy unto the Lord. Colossians 3.12 As God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. You are holy, but you're still sinful. You still have a fallen frame. You still exist in the flesh. But yet, you have been offered to the Lord, as it were, as His people. Despite your sin, despite my sin. And there's more that could be said about that, I think. But I do want to say a little bit more about this day. Because don't forget what day of the week it fell on. Again, what day of the week did Pentecost fall on? Sunday. You may have, I can't say this with definitude, but you may have some prefigurements even in the old covenant law that the first day of the week was to be a holy day. It was a holy day for the Feast of First Fruits, for instance. That's when, on the first day of the week, that was to be celebrated. It was a holy day on Pentecost when Pentecost happened on the first day of the week, what we know to be Sunday. As Mark Roker wrote in his commentary on Leviticus, the Feast of Weeks, Pentecost, was to occur seven full weeks after the Feast of First Fruits, thus it was named Weeks. Coming seven weeks after the beginning of the Passover, the festival always fell on the first day of the week. And I here want to take a quick moment for what I think is an important excursus briefly. 
Pentecost fell on the first day of the week. And when you go through the New Testament, I think we see an emphasis on the importance and priority that should be placed on the first day of the week. And I think sadly in our current Christian culture, the consideration for the first day of the week as a holy day, a, responsible, a responsibility that we have to gather before the Lord is oftentimes diminished and it's not treated with the sanctity that it is to be treated with. We are not Old Covenant Jews under the Old Covenant law. No, we are not. But we are New Testament Christians. And when we go through the New Testament, we see that this day was routinely set apart as a precious day. And I think we should esteem it as precious. To give you some reasons why, Jesus rose on what day of the week? The first day of the week, Sunday. You can see that multiple places in the New Testament. Furthermore, it's worth noting that Jesus was worshipped on that day by the women who saw him on the way to go tell the disciples. Matthew 28, verse 9. On that day, Jesus expounded the Word of God. So He was worshipped on that day, and He expounded the Word of God on that day, the first day of the week, Luke 24, verse 27. It's fitting thus that Christians would gather together on the first day of the week to worship Him and to hear His Word expounded. As we go on, we know that Jesus, who appeared to His disciples and His apostles on the first day of the week, would then appear the next week on Sunday because Thomas wasn't there Resurrection Sunday evening. But when did he appear? Again, he appeared on the first day of the week to Thomas. It's as though Jesus was establishing Sunday, the first day of the week, as a special day. Here we are at the day of Pentecost, and the Holy Spirit is poured out on what day of the week? On Sunday, on the Lord's Day. This monumental moment in the church where the Lord is pouring out His Spirit More about that in a moment. This beautiful work that he's doing. New creations in Christ Jesus. The covenant community and the new covenant community being established as it were. On the day of Pentecost. We'd see as we we go through the book of Acts, we're going to see the early church would gather on the first day of the week. Acts chapter 20 verse 7. Now on the first day of the week when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message till midnight. So there he was. What is he doing? He's teaching. He's not watching the clock. <laughs> not that they had clocks. Um, but but he, he's good. He's going on. If you remember what happens a little bit later on there, you know, uh, that gentleman fell out the window. <laughs> he was sitting there. I guess the, the preaching was a little long for him. Having fallen, fallen asleep while Paul was preaching, he fell. Paul was used by God to resurrect him and they continued breaking bread together and Paul continued his teaching you see that in Acts chapter 20 as well so the people of God are gathering the people of God are hearing God's word taught unpacked and expounded and when are they doing it first day of the week what we know to be as Sunday another example comes in Paul's epistle to the church at Corinth where he wrote to the church of Corinth on the first day of the week Let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there may be no collections when I come. Again, the anticipation is you're all going to be together. So do it on the first day of the week. Set aside something for the Christians who were, to give you a little bit of context, who were suffering in Jerusalem due to the famine. You could see that reference in Acts chapter 11, verse 28. They were to set these funds aside, and when were they to bring them forward? On the first day of the week. 
Now we come to the first chapter of the book of Revelation, and John makes reference to the Lord's Day. Revelation chapter 1, verse 10. Now John didn't expound upon it. He simply referenced it in a way to suggest that everyone knew what he was talking about. It's also worth noting that John's vision happened on what day of the week? Sunday. The first day of the week. It's all worth noting. Now, think about when you read through the book of Revelation. John saw Jesus walking among the seven golden lampstands, which represented the seven churches of Asia on what appears to have been Sunday, the Lord's Day. Early church writings, I can't give you, I could give you, but there's a lot of them. Uh, Early church writings reference the Lord's Day with reference to Sunday, the day in which Christians gathered for worship. I say all that to say, if you see the testimony of Scripture, and you see how God had set apart this day and what He has done on this day in New Testament history, then maybe you will be more likely to esteem it and treasure it the way it ought to be esteemed and treasured. A little bit of just pastoral counsel. If I was sitting with you, you know, around the table and we were discussing the importance of the Lord's Day, I would tell you, please, make sure you treat this day with the regard and reverence that it deserves. Look at its history. Sadly, even in the healthiest of churches, there could be the most frivolous of excuses for why people miss Lord's Day gatherings. And I'm not being mean. This is just something, if I'm going to do my responsibility as a pastor then part of it's going to be to tell you, you need to esteem this day. And sometimes in our world, sometimes in the Christian culture, it could be that other things must be, but corporate gathering in church may be. There's a birthday this day. I have to go. There's a sports game this day. I have to go. There's some family occasion. There's this event. There's that event. I have to go. Do you have to go? I'm not being mean. I know there are times when we're providentially hindered, You know, we think of dear brethren who are ill right now and would love to be among the gathered assembly of God's people. I know there are times when we are providentially hindered. But again, I say, even in the healthiest of churches, there could be the most frivolous of excuses. Let that not be said among you. By God's grace, when you come to the end of your race, may it be said of you that you are consistent to honor the Lord's prescription. He's ordained this day for the church to be gathered, for prayers to be offered, for giving to be done, for singing and songs to happen, for the Word of God to be preached and proclaimed. This is a holy thing. You don't need fire to appear. You don't need a pillar of cloud to appear to know that this is a holy thing. The Word of God has told you in more ways than one, this is a holy assembling that we are not to forsake, but we are to do all the more as we see the day of Christ approaching. So I plead with you, as there are different things that are going to pull at you to regard the Lord's Day as a kind of option, a thing that may be, I would exhort you to see it as a thing that must be. Not as though you're under some law, but as an outworking of your new covenant life as a Christian. This is where I want to be. And it's a priority. Praise God. Um, Back to... Back to the book of Acts. You can see the significance of the day of Pentecost, right? It's not just another day. It's a feast day with many, many significant uh, implications tied to it. Let's see what else happened here. They were all together uh, in one place. So speaking likely right there about the 120, all being gathered uh, in that upper room 
maybe the same upper room in which they celebrated uh, the Last Supper with the Lord Jesus, very likely the upper room that they had been in when Jesus appeared to them, and somehow they maintained meeting in that same place, which was apparently near the temple, maybe very, very close to the temple, within the precincts even, perhaps, some suggest. But then we come to Acts chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, where we read, And suddenly there came a sound from heaven, as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. Now again, in the weeks ahead, we will go through in detail what this doesn't mean. But right now, let's just walk through what it does mean. Lord willing, we will tend to that as we go. The words at the opening of verse 2 say, And suddenly there came a sound from heaven. This connotes how the event happened so suddenly, so without warning. The Greek word that's used here, it's only used a few times in the New Testament, afno. Uh, refers to the suddenness of an event. It's used in Acts chapter 16, as a matter of fact, verse 26, when Paul and Silas are sitting in that Philippian prison, that Philippian jail, and then suddenly there was an earthquake that shook the foundation of the prison where they were. Like that occasion, and even more so, this was no ordinary occasion. But I want you to notice where the emphasis is here. It says, and suddenly there came what? Suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. The emphasis is on the sound. And you'll see that within the text in a moment. Now this could often be missed, right? The sound that came, that filled the room, was like a mighty rushing wind. I would try to do an impression of a mighty rushing wind for you, but I don't think it would go anywhere good. But you can imagine it, right? Some of you probably doing it in your head. You're like, what would that sound like? Kind of doing it in your head right now. It would sound like this. I'm not going to do it, but you, you know what it sounds like. And you know, if you've ever been caught in like a, you know, a, a storm and it's really windy, like say for instance, if you're on the phone, you know that sometimes that wind, just the wind could be so loud. This was like that, but to a degree that was um, so powerful, it was clearly supernatural. I want you to see the significance of this, because some of you might wonder, I've wondered this at times, when you just go through the scriptures and you just read it sometimes, you wonder, okay, they're in the upper room, Right? And all of a sudden, the day of Pentecost happens, but then all of a sudden, there's this big audience. Like, what happened? What, where, how, where did the audience come from? Because they were in the upper room. How did the audience know to gather? You find out how the audience knew to gather when you look at verse 6. Look ahead. Acts chapter 2, verse 6. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused. Because everyone heard them speak in his own language. So we'll see this within the context here. Now some have referenced that that sound in the immediate context is speaking of the wind and that had gathered the crowds. And doubtless they heard also, we see right here, the language. But what had happened was the sound had occurred in that room and the people had left from that room and they began speaking and people could hear the speaking in their own language. So some suggest that the sound was the wind though it could also be a reference here to the languages that were spoken. But nonetheless, that great crowd that was there, they gather outside, and we think about that sound that filled the room, as of a mighty rushing wind. 
Let me ask the question, what is the significance, if any, in the sound from heaven being as of a mighty rushing wind? This was a loud and powerful sound. If you were to take a New Testament Greek class, one of the first words that you would learn, it'd be, in your, it'd be on your first quiz, one of the first words you would learn because of its frequency of use, I believe, is the word pneuma. The word pneuma, if you learn the definition of it, you could translate it as spirit, you could translate it as breath, you could translate it as wind. The word for spirit could be used as either of those, any of those three. Same thing for the Hebrew word for spirit, ruach. Ruach could be spirit, breath, or wind. There are connections to be seen between the working of wind and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Beginning in Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, we read the following. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, with respect to that, James Montgomery Boyce wrote the following. The Holy Spirit of God is portrayed as God's breath, as the creative, moving, dynamic breath of God. This breath, this divine, life-giving wind, is what is blowing across the waters at the beginning. Perhaps your mind goes to Ezekiel 37 and the Valley of Dry Bones. God shows Ezekiel the Valley of Dry Bones. He asks him a question, can these bones live? If you go on, you see that the wind blows, bones are given muscles and tendons, and dry bones come to life. But remember what the Lord said to Ezekiel. He said in Ezekiel 37, verses 9 and 10, And also He said to me, Prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath. Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as He commanded me, And breath came into them, and they lived and stood upon their feet, an exceedingly great army. I think you also see there, by the way, a connection between preaching and the Holy Spirit. Because it's as He prophesies in our New Testament context, it's as the Word of God goes forth, which is, as the Puritans would note, prophesying, you're setting forth the Word of God. The Spirit of God takes the Word of God and brings either illumination or newness of life and so on. But again, the Spirit's ministry there connected with the wind. To give you one more example, this one from the New Testament, think of what Jesus told Nicodemus regarding the new birth. In John chapter 3, verse 8, Jesus told Nicodemus, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Again, there's the connection between the Spirit of God and wind. That brings us to the day of Pentecost. Are we to see that just as the Spirit of God hovered over the waters at the original creation, so He is here as He begets new creations in Christ and establishes His covenant people? I would say it would seem so. The life-giving, creative power of God filled the upper room. And I think that's part of what's being connoted, right? The sound filled the upper room. It's as though the people were being immersed by the very presence of God. As Jesus promised they would be, they were baptized, filled with the Holy Spirit. I think this also has overtones 
of the Old Testament where God would fill the temple with His glory. As that room was filled, the sound of the wind filled the room. But it wasn't just that. What else happened? There was a sound as of a mighty rushing wind. It filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. Think of the significance of this. So doubtless they heard the sound, but something so significant had happened, and they needed this visual demonstration to show that the Holy Spirit was not just there in some general way, but He was upon each of the members that had gathered, which was such a unique event in biblical redemptive history. You probably know, probably it's going through your mind, that fire oftentimes symbolized the presence of God. God was as a flaming torch passing through the sacrifices that Abraham prepared as he made a unilateral covenant with Abraham, Genesis chapter 15, verse 17. We think of the burning bush where the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in a burning bush, picturing God's aseity that he's self-sustaining. Remember, the bush is encapsulated with fire, but the bush is not being burned, as though to say that God is not dependent upon the bush. The fire was not dependent upon the bush to burn. But God's presence was represented by fire. God's presence was represented by fire at Mount Sinai, Exodus 19. God led His people during their journeys in the wilderness by the pillar of fire that led them. God provided sight in the darkness, if you will. Pillar of fire and different representations of fire can often connote even God's gracious presence Doubtless, it connotes God's holy presence. Our God, to use language from the writer of Hebrews, is a consuming fire. He is a consuming fire. But here we're told that these little pillars, these little tongues of fire would rest upon each one. And why was that so necessary? Why was that so appropriate? That they would see this. It wasn't actual fire. It's the, it's the supernatural presence of God. These tongues of fire. It was a fitting demonstration because it declared to everyone in that room that God's gracious presence was upon each one of them and even more as new covenant people inside of each one of them. The symbolism might even go further. That God was going to empower their tongues to speak of Him and of His glory. They would be empowered in such a way. Remember, Jesus told His apostles not to leave Jerusalem. They were going to be endued with power and they were going to be His witnesses. So the person of the Holy Spirit brings with His personage power. With the personage of the Holy Spirit comes power. Interestingly, as we go through the book of Acts, you're going to see when people are filled with the Holy Spirit, one of the things that happens subsequently is they begin to proclaim truth. You think what happens on this day, Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit and Peter's Pentecost sermon is going to happen. These are filled with the Holy Spirit and all of a sudden, we're going to see this a little bit later on in Acts 2, they begin declaring the praises of God. People are filled with the Holy Spirit and their tongues are, as it were, set aflame. They begin to speak of Christ boldly, yet lovingly proclaiming the truth of God. You think of Moses and Joshua and their conversation in the Old Testament when the um, spirit that was upon Moses was taken and put upon the elders. And then there was prophesying that was heard 
outside of the camp, and then Joshua had told Moses, and he said something along the lines of, oh, that all God's people, I would that all God's people would prophesy. Well, now you have the new covenant reality. What Moses, if you will, hoped for, that as opposed to the Old Testament, when the Spirit of God came upon or came within a person, but, it, but individuals at selected times, at selected ways. Say Samson, for instance. The Holy Spirit would come upon Samson and he would deliver Israel to a degree from the Philistines, but then the Holy Spirit would leave Samson. You have this amazing new covenant reality where A, the Spirit of God would be upon all the people of God and be within all the people of God. It wasn't just a select few. If you are in Christ, the Holy Spirit has been given to you. He abides within you. You can't be a Christian without the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 8, verse 9. If any man does not have the Spirit, he does not belong to Christ. So every Christian has the Spirit. This is unique. If you were to transfer yourself back to Old Covenant Israelite time, you would see how this is rare. But now in the New Covenant community, everyone who is a son or daughter of God has the Spirit of God. Everyone has been empowered. Not for the slaying of Philistines, but for the building up of Christ's church. To bear witness of His glory and to be a witness for Him. So I think it's important that we see the implications of this. And there's more that could be, there's more that could be said. The Spirit of God came upon each one of them. And He would not leave. So that be another point to note. As opposed to say, you know, in Old Covenant cases where the Holy Spirit might come upon a person and then leave that individual. You know, you think of somebody like Saul, for instance. That doesn't happen with the people of God. The Holy Spirit is the earnest. He's the down payment of your inheritance as a Christian. You've been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Which is amazing because you can grieve Him, but He doesn't leave you. What a precious promise. Paul, writing to the Ephesians, said, In Him, speaking of Christ, you also trusted. After you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of His glory. Well, we have just but begun our journeying through Acts chapter 2. May you be freshly encouraged, Christian, to know that this new covenant reality is yours in Christ. We'll go through more of this uh, precious event and the implications of it, but know for now that the same Holy Spirit that filled those in the upper room at Pentecost, if you are a Christian, that same Holy Spirit has taken up residence in you. Thanks be to God. And above all, you are to proclaim the Gospel. As you're going to see Peter do shortly, Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life, the only way in which a man or woman could be forgiven of their sins, because He died for those sins and rose from the grave on behalf of all who would believe in Him for the forgiveness of sins. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your amazing, Your amazing ways, Lord. For the prophetic calendar that you had set forth in the Old Testament to point to your Son. For the ways in which we could appreciate afresh what you have done through Him. And the redemptive historical work that we are partaking of, Lord. Because of what Christ has done for us. Thank you, Lord, for the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of first fruits. Thank you for the Feast of Pentecost, Lord. 
Father, I know that in between those four feasts and then the remaining three, there was a big waiting period. And I know that first feast that would come next was the Feast of Trumpets. And Lord, that calls to my mind the return of Your Son when He will come with the sound of a trumpet. And Father, we know not whether the Lord Jesus will uh, call us home today or whether we will be uh, there when He arrives, Lord. But I pray that every person in this room would be ready for such occasions, Lord. If there'd be anybody in this place who has not come to You by Your grace, trusting in Christ alone for forgiveness, may today be the day. May that same Holy Spirit whom we are studying as ministering and being poured out on the day of Pentecost, may that same Spirit, if it be Your will, Lord, open the eyes of such a one. And may they say, I am trusting in Christ alone. He is my Savior and I am rejoicing in the forgiveness of all of my sins, past, present, and future because of what the Savior has done. And Father, for Your people, I know today is not Pentecost, but Father, may we leave here freshly encouraged to proclaim the wondrous works of God, the greatest of which in our minds, Lord, clearly is the Gospel. Help us, Lord, to be loving and bold witnesses of that truth, empowered by Your Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.